Well, guys, make sure you have your Bibles open to Isaiah 55 as we look at it. But uh, as we do uh, most of the time, I would say, is we're giving away a book. Who, who was here uh, a couple of months ago when Al Stewart spoke to the blokes? Uh, yeah, okay. One of, the, one of the things that Al Stewart has done is write this great book, The Manual, Getting Masculinity Right. It's a fantastic book. Who, who of the blokes has actually read some of it or all of it? Or yeah, yeah, I'm assuming you all guys would recommend it. So many people, so many of the guys have actually raved about this book. So if you haven't got this book yet and you're a guy, please you can just grab it. I'll put it down the front. If you're a woman and you've got a guy in your life, you think, man, he should read How to Get Masculinity Right because maybe he hasn't. I, I'm, I'm sure he has, but uh, maybe you want to read or get that book for him. I'm going to pray as we look at God's Word now, uh, so let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we look at your Word this morning, that you would speak to us. Wherever we're at with you, whether we're hungry and thirsty, whether we feel like we're full, whether we're satisfied or not, help us to see what we need is truly you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember a number of years ago, I was going out with this girl and she invited me uh, to a dinner party of a bunch of friends that I had never met. And she goes, she said to me, oh, it's going to be really cool. We usually get together and it's really chilled and, um, and you know, we just eat and we chat. It's going to be fun. It's really laid back. It's going to be great. We went there and it was not chilled or laid back at all. It was around a, a table, and whoever was there, whoever kind of put the put the uh, party on, would it was like a dinner party, a formal dinner party, and uh, there was all this nice fine china. There was multiple knives and forks, and I, I just looked at them, and I grew up in Maury. We used a knife and fork, and only one, and yet there was three, and I was like, I don't know what to do. And, uh, you know, they were talking about all these things that I didn't know. One, one talked about the stock options that he was buying, and I was like, uh, I know you can get stocks, but options, whatever. I just didn't get it at all. And as we were driving home, we talked about it, and she apologized. She said, oh, I thought it was going to be chilled, but it wasn't. I said, oh, don't worry, it's fine. I'll use it in an illustration one day, and here I am, right? I literally said that to her, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever been invited to something, and it, it hasn't met expectations, because you thought it was going to be something, and it was totally different. Maybe it was something where you were invited, and you thought it was going to be really bad, and actually, it was really good. Maybe it was like that event, you thought it was going to be really chilled and relaxed and casual, and it wasn't. The reason I ask this question is, today, in, in the Bible passage, God is actually inviting us to a banquet. He, he's actually inviting us to know him and be one of his people for eternity. But here's the question. What, is, what will it be like... When God invites you and I, what is it going to be like to know him? To be one of his children, to be one of his people. The reason I ask this is because so many of us, I think we've got this idea where that, that God is, when he invites us in, he's inviting us to a life of rules, of regulation. It's not this relaxed thing, it's really kind of, there's rules and formality and God will be there going, hey, you've got to measure up, you've got to measure up, you've got to measure up. And maybe you're here and you have, you have got that idea about God. 
that God is there and he's inviting you into a relationship with him, but it's kind of like the relationship of a parent who's really stern, that he looks down on you and he says, well, to be my kid, to earn my love, you've got to do this and that and this and that. Well, today we're actually going to see that God's inviting us to something that is far better, far better than that. And and it doesn't matter whether you're here and you're religious or totally not religious or it doesn't matter if this is the first time you ever come to church, God is inviting you, you, with all your faults and all your brokenness and all your wins and losses. He's inviting you and me. And we're going to see three things as we look at this passage. God is calling us to do three things in this passage. The first is, he's calling us to come to him. The second, to seek him. And thirdly, to live with joy. Firstly, to come to him. Second, seek him. And thirdly, live with joy. Now, one of the things I've got to say is that when I preach, I'm putting together outlines They're on the table as you came in, so you can always have a look at that table, and if there's an outline, you can take it. Uh, But it doesn't matter. There are three points. They're on the outline, and we're going to be seeing them if you've got an outline or not. So let's have a look at the first thing. God calls us to come to him. Have a look at verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 55. It says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. All, all, those, all those comes there are what, what's called imperative verbs. It, it, it's this idea that, that it's not just like someone going, oh, well, you know, you can come over if you want. You, you know, I don't know if you've got a friend and they say, oh, well, I'm just hanging out. We're just going to watch, you know, the footy. If you want to come, you can. It's not that kind of come. It's, oh, I mean, you've got to come and see this. This is, be, this is going to be awesome. You, you, you've got to come. It's that kind of excitement here. And in fact, there's all these verbs all the way through the first seven verses. In fact, the 12 imperative verbs, because the idea is, is come, you've got to come. This is great. But, but, but notice what, what the invitation is too. It's to those who are thirsty, and those who have no money, and he says, come buy and eat. How can you buy and eat something if you have no money? Especially if it's without money and without costs. You can only do that if it's been bought for you. God is calling you and I into a relationship with him. And the reason he can, he can say this and say, come and buy, is because the suffering servant that we looked at last week has paid the price so that we can know him. He's bought our salvation, and so we just can come to him. But then he asks a question in verse 2. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? He, he says our world is a vast marketplace of unsatisfying but costly remedies for our God-shaped longings. So why are you spending all your time, your money on things that don't ultimately satisfy? There are so many things in this world that promise so much and yet they do not satisfy. And and God says, hey, that doesn't satisfy, but notice what God offers. Have a look at verse 2, the second half. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the riches riches of fair God's great banquet. There's no soup kitchen. 
Here is God, and he is offering the richest affair. And do you notice what we've got to do? We've got to come, and we've got to listen. Verse 2 again. Listen, listen to me. There is a big difference between listening and hearing God, isn't there? You can hear something and really not do anything with it. But if you listen, you take action. So you see, it's a bit like this. Who's got a child who, who will say this after you've asked them seven times, I heard you the first time? Anyone got a kid like that? I haven't. But you may, right? It's funny. They heard me the first time, but they did not listen. Because if they did, they would have followed my instruction. Here God is saying, come, listen, listen to this invitation. But don't just hear it, come, do something about it. Come to him. Verse 3, he repeats this. Give ear and come to me, listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. Here, here he's saying, I'm going to make this an agreement with you. A covenant is an agreement, but, but it's, it's more than an agreement also. It's not just a legal thing. It's a relational thing also. Here they're making a covenant, which is a, a legal and yet relational, loving obligation between two people. And what you've got to realize is the people in Isaiah's day has totally broken their covenant the covenant that God gave to Abraham. And he's talking about a new covenant, a new covenant that was promised to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that one day there would be someone in David's line, a great-great-grandchild, who would be the king forever. And what Isaiah is saying One day that king will be on the throne. One day, through that king, you'll be invited to this banquet because he is the suffering servant who is going to pay the price so that you can come in. And that's that's who he talks about in verse 4. Have a look at it with me. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you not know, know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the whole, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. The Holy One of God, God the Heavenly Father, has endowed Jesus with so much splendor that we're going to see a flood of people from every nation come to Him. Come to Him. This passage in these first five verses are very clear. The there's two, two things on offer. You can either go to the world and spend your money on things that do not satisfy, or you can come to God freely by His grace alone and be absolutely satisfied. What well are you drinking from? Are you truly satisfied or not? I think we live in a world, as I've said before, where there's so many things on offer. And there's so many things in this world that that say, if you come to me, if if, if you really make this your everything, it will satisfy you. And yet it doesn't. Some of you guys have had your dreams fulfilled and you're not satisfied. Some of you guys look at your life now. Oh, wait up. We got a doctor. 
Hey guys, thank you for your patience. I do appreciate that. Um, Elizabeth uh, has been able to walk outside. We've called an ambulance. And uh, the, the great thing about our church, it's small, but we've got a bunch of doctors, you know, so that's actually a really good thing. Um, so I guess, you know, if you're, uh, something's going to happen, this is the best place for it, I guess. Uh, I'm going to pray for Elizabeth. I'm also going to pray that I will be able to get back to where I was and uh, we, can, we can keep going. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we, we thank you that we live in a country where medical help is not only great, but it's so quick. And uh, Lord, we thank you also for the, for the years of, of work and study that uh, people in our church have been able to put in so that they're able to help in very serious times like this. Thank you that Elizabeth looks like she's okay. And Lord, we pray for our dear sister that she would continue to follow you and trust you and she would be uh, fine once again. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the things I was talking about, I was talking about what a, lot, what, what a lot of us do is we look at the things of this world to find satisfaction in. And one of the big questions I think we've got to ask us is, what are we looking to for satisfaction? Uh, what, what things in this world uh, are we looking towards satisfaction? And, uh, and as I said, a lot of us here, our dreams have come true. I'm not sure if you had an idea of where you wanted your life to be, but I dare say so many of us have looked at our lives and, and thought, well, if my 17-year-old could see me now, I think he'd be pretty impressed. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, I, I, I had a meeting with a, a guy who's from a parachurch organization about the music here at church and, and what, what his organization could do. And um, he was a guitarist, so I showed him some of my guitars. He goes, wow, that, that's amazing and all this kind of thing. And then I thought, wow, if, if my 17-year-old could see me now with my guitars, he'd be really kind of impressed. And then I thought, actually, if my 17-year-old self could see me with my family, he'd be impressed. And being a pastor, he'd be really happy because really that's what he wanted. And I wonder if you have found a bunch of things that, that you look back on your life and go, I've, I've ticked things off my bucket list. But ultimately, they haven't satisfied. And we see that with a lot of famous people, don't we? A lot of famous people have found what they're really looking for and they're not satisfied and we see this in the, that quote that if you've got your outline there, it, it, it's, it's a quote I've used before, but it's from Cynthia Heimel. Cynthia Heimel was, was in New York when a lot of actors we know and love were really struggling actors. And here's what she says about celebrities. I pity celebrities. No, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis and Barbara Streisand were once perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. You see, Sly, Bruce and Barbara wanted fame. They worked and pushed and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. 
because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. I think that's really interesting, isn't it? Here is Cynthia Highmore. She goes, I knew Barbara, Bruce, Willis and Sylvester Stallone. They got exactly what they thought would satisfy them and it didn't. I wonder if you're looking to things of this world to satisfy you. Because what this passage is saying is, guess what? Don't look at the things of this world to satisfy. Come to Jesus. He will satisfy. Come It costs you nothing, but it will satisfy because the price has already been paid. Jesus has died for you, dealing with your sin, guilt, and shame. So therefore, you can come to know God because ultimately, you were created to know God. And so when you know God and you live for Him, that's when you are living in kind of the right lane. That is what you are created for, and therefore that will be satisfying. But some of you guys are going, hands, but I'm not religious. Well, the good news is God loves those who aren't religious. He says to you who aren't religious, come. Some of you guys are going, well, hands, I've actually tried religion, and it didn't work. But we're not talking about religion here. We're talking about grace, God's unmerited favor to you. And he says, come. But, but some of you guys are saying, but Hans, I have nothing to offer God. God doesn't want anything from you, and he wants to give you everything, so come. Uh, some of you guys are saying, but, but Hans, I've been told God doesn't like or love people like me. Well, can I just say that's a lie? God loves exactly people like you. In fact, he loves you so much that he died for you. So he's saying, come. But some of you guys are saying, but hands, I am trapped in sin. God came to save people like you who are trapped in sin. And he says, come. But hands, I feel so far from God. But God in Jesus came near to you. So come to him. Don't go to to the things of this world that don't satisfy. Come to Jesus by his grace alone and you will be satisfied. What are you looking to for ultimate satisfaction? God says, first point, come to him. Second, seek him. Have a look at verse 6 with me. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. To seek the Lord is, is to come to him and stop dawdling. Stop just mucking around with God, but be intentional about Him. There's a sense in which when I walk home with my kids, I go down to to pick them up from Kent Road, and I'm walking home with intentionality because I've got stuff to do, right? I've got a a to-do list. I've got about an hour-ish or even less, so I've got work to do. One of my kids is not like that. He just kind of walks and dawdles, and I'll be walking, and then he's 20 metres behind. I kind of let you know who he, who he is, right? Didn't I, right? 
There's a difference between intentionality and dawdling along. Seeking God is all about intentionality. But, but notice that there is a time frame here. So, so, see, notice, seek the Lord while he may be found. He's saying, you may have a time frame for coming to know God. Guess what? God has got his own time frame. And the time is now. It's not in the future. It's, it's now. And, and notice where God is. He's saying, verse 6 once again, call on him while he is near. God is not far from you. He has come in Jesus. He's not aloof and unavailable. God is near to you. But have a look what we should do. Have a look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to God and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon He's saying, see the sin in your life that is rebellion against God. Turn away from that and come to God. And what is God going to do? God is not going to be stern with you. No, he forgives. He loves to forgive. He's energized by forgiving you. He's energized by the mercy that he wants to give to you. But why do we need to forgive? How look of, sorry, why do we need to repent? Why do we need to change? Have a look at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As, as, high, uh, uh, sorry, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying if you compare us, if you compare us and God, there's a huge difference. There's a difference in the way we think and the way we act compared to God. And so, therefore, we actually need to have a different way of thinking and a different way of acting because his, his thoughts and ways are so much greater than ours. There's so much more moral and therefore we need to change. And he knows what is best and that's why we need to trust in him. We must come into line with him. And when we do, God is the God who is merciful. And we see that, that his word always comes through. Have a look at verse 9. As the heavens are higher than the earth, sorry, let's have a look at verse 10. As the, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it blood, bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent. He's saying, have a look at the rain. Say, when the rain comes, what's, what do you know? Well, I know that I'll be able to look, look at my back lawn and it will grow a foot, basically, right? I know that when the rain comes, it waters the fields, and guess what? It does things. It's effective, and he's saying, just like the rain that comes, God's word is effective. God's word never fails. It always comes through. It always returns to God, doing exactly what it wants. So all through this passage, God says, I am offering you to come by grace alone. I will give you mercy. And I will give you a hope and a future that's what God's word says. God is going to come through on that. 
this passage or this section in this passage is saying. What we need to do is come to God. We need to radically change our lives from being us-centered to God-centered. That will mean repentance of our wickedness, of our sin. Now, here's the thing. I dare say when we hear, when we read those words... Let the wicked forsake their ways, in verse 7, and the unrighteous their thoughts. I go, oh, great, I'm not wicked. I'm not unrighteous. In fact, I'm a pretty good person. I'm actually a really good person. But one of the things that we've got to realize is that when Jesus calls people to repent in the Gospels, the main people he calls to repent are very, very religious. They are very, very good And yet they are also very, very far from God. See, what we've got to realize is that when when the Bible talks about repentance, it is not just repent of doing bad things. It's actually repentance of our goodness as well. It's not just saying repent of our unrighteousness, but also our righteousness. It's not just repenting of our lack of religion, it's repenting of our religion too. Now, you're probably going, I'm totally confused right now. What do you mean? Let's just step back for one second. In Genesis 3, Satan talks to Adam and Eve. And and he says basically, hey, you know, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God knowing good and evil. It's almost like he's saying, hey, God's holding his, his good things back from you. And so take that fruit, eat it, because God is not going to give it to you. And, and the great lie that we as people all believe about God, we, we are born believing this lie is that God is like a parent who is so stingy. He is so stingy that he does not want to give good things to us. And he's got such a high bar that that we we can never meet. Well, I remember um, being at school with a couple of kids, actually three of them. And they had parents who were really stingy. That, that wouldn't give their kids good gifts. They had to work, work, and kind of work to prove themselves. Not only that, they had these moral bars that were huge. What happened to those kids? Well, one of them totally rebelled, became the biggest party animal in the world. I don't know where he's at, probably off partying somewhere if he's still alive, right? The other two kids became very, very, very good kids. That the, They... They went to uni, they got great jobs, and they are model citizens. But I remember talking to one of them only a few years ago and saying, your, your parents must be really proud of you. And they said, well, we don't know because we haven't got this relationship with our parents where they would say anything like that. It feels like we work and work and work and work for their love, but we don't have that. And I said, so can I ask if you love your parents? They said, actually, no, we hate them. It's really tragic. Here's the problem. When we believe that God is not a good God who wants to give us great things, we either rebel against him, which is what we, most of us, think of wickedness. But I think the problem in a lot of churches 
is that what we've done is we believe that God is not a good, loving God who wants to freely give us good gifts. So what do we do? We try to earn his love and and, and we come to this place where we become so self-reliant and self-righteous. That we do all these things. We're good. We do all these things. And then God's got to love us. And in the end, we're trusting in ourselves for our salvation, not God. And in the end, we don't have this great relationship with God. In fact, it's one of frustration. Some of you guys believe that you've got to be good to earn God's love. Of course, of course you wouldn't say that. I mean, I, I mean you would never say that. But you believe that in your heart. Your heart believes that. And yet, in this passage, in fact, in the whole Bible, God says, I am your good heavenly Father who wants to give you good gifts. And you've got to realize that your, your pursuit of being good, because you're trusting in yourself, is something that you have to repent of. Because you're trusting in yourself, you're not trusting in God. Have you repented of your goodness, not just your badness? Have you repented of your righteousness as well as your unrighteousness? Have you repented of your religion as well as your irreligion? Because if you have a look at the gospel, it speaks to both. It speaks to those who have kind of destroyed our lives with wickedness. It speaks to those who we haven't destroyed our lives. We've got it all together. But we're actually legalistic and self-righteous. And to get God's grace, we've got to repent of both. Have you truly repented of that? Have you come and sought God? And repented. But second, lastly, God calls us to live with joy. Have a look at verse 11 and 12 with me. 12 and 13, sorry. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. It's saying when this Messiah comes back, when Jesus comes back, it's like the whole world, which is kind of silent, all the earth will become the singing earth. And these are metaphors here, mountains jumping for joy, you know, hills will burst into song. It's not like we're going to go to Everest and it starts singing, you know, Behold Our God or something like that. No, it's saying the whole world is in celebration because of what Jesus has done. But, but did you see also in verse 12 the emotion that we're meant to have? Joy. That because of what Jesus has done, the appropriate response is joy. Joy is a positive feeling that no matter what is going on in your life, that you know you've got hope. You know you've been forgiven. You know what God has done for you. And so therefore you've got a positive feeling. That's akin to happiness. But the problem with happiness is it can go. 
You, you know, one day you might be feeling happy, the next day everything falls apart, but you're, you're no longer happy. That's not joy. Joy is centered not on your circumstances, but what Jesus has done for you. Can I ask you this question? How are you going with joy? Are you a joyous person? If you trust in the Lord Jesus, are you a joyous person? I think it's really interesting that when we have a look in the Bible, when we have a look even in verse 12, joy is, ter- is, is always there or usually there with singing. The way humans express their joy or even their happiness is singing a lot of the time, isn't it? I, I mean, I remember a, a, number of year, a number of years ago, it was last year, did anyone watch the bronze medal game at the Olympics in basketball? Did anyone do that? No, I did, right? I can still... Re- oh, oh, some of you guys did that. That's good. That's good. Well, I've got some friends here, right? First time Australia ever won bron- the bronze medal, right? And I remember coming, watching the game. They had won. I was kind of teary. Kate was like, did they lose? And I was like, no, they won. They won gold. No, they won bronze. They only won bronze in your cry. This is the first time they've won bronze, right? And then she said, wait, wait, you, you, we got married. You had three kids. You didn't cry. You, they win bronze of all things and you're in tears, right? What was interesting in the next few days, it showed Patty Mills and Joe Ingalls, the captains, celebrating. What were they doing? And what were they doing when they won bronze? What were they doing as they celebrated? They were singing. I come from a land down under. They were singing. Over and over again, right? They were singing because they had won. They were full of joy and happiness because they had won. Brothers and sisters, you are part of the greatest winning team ever. Jesus has defeated Satan's sin and death for you. And guess what? You were sitting on the bench the whole time. And so how should you respond? With joyful singing and praising. Joyful singing and praising. Especially at church. Here's what Peter Kreef says. He says this, Now, suppose death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indutable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have free for the asking, your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? And the answer is, of course you would. But that is true that death and hell have been defeated, that your, your future is so bright, despite your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, God has given you eternity with him. And so w- what should we do when we come to church? We should lift the roof off this place with singing because of what Jesus has done. We should be belting it out because of what Jesus has done. We should be full of joy because of what Jesus has done. Is that you? When, when you sing in church, can everyone around you 
see that you're full of joy? Or do you sing because, oh, it's just something that's been done? I think, I think it's very interesting that we as evangelicals who really prize knowledge and getting the gospel right and everything, that when we sing, kind of, kind of look bored, don't we? Kind of look bored. We sing Amazing Grace, but it looks like we're actually singing through our shopping lists. And yet, we've got amazing things to sing about. I remember as a kid, I wasn't a Christian when I heard this conversation, but a bunch of, um, a bunch of guys who worked with my dad came over on a Friday afternoon for beers after work. And I was just sitting there having a Coke, hearing what they were talking about, hearing them crack jokes. And then one, one guy came in, I forget his name, but uh, they started having a joke at his expense because he had been to church just that last Sunday. He, would in, he was invited by a, na- a guy named Rod Chiswell, who is now the Anglican Bishop of the Armadale Diocese. And uh, Rod was working for the council as an engineer at the time and invited this bloke to church. And my, my dad and all his mates thought that was hilarious. You went to church. And then he said, oh, but you should have seen, seen church. You should have seen Rod because he, that bloke can sing. And he said, and I'll never forget these words, he said, he sung as if he had something worth singing about. He sung as if he had something worth singing about. Brothers and sisters, we have got something worth singing about, don't we, in the gospel? We've got something amazing worth singing about. And so when we gather together, we're full of joy and we sing. That's what, what, what we do. Now, some of you guys are going, well, hands, I can't sing. Well, well, guess what? Join the club. None of us can, right? People ask me because I play guitar. They say, hands, can you sing? I said, no, if you heard me sing, you wouldn't believe in Jesus. That's how badly I sing. But we sing not to make beautiful noise, but to actually show how joyful we are. Some of you guys are going, well, hands, I, I don't like a lot of the songs that we sing. Guess what? The person next to you probably does. And so sing for them. We sing because God has done so much for us. If you invited a friend to church, would they go and say to their friends, wow, this person has got, this person sings like they've got something to sing for. We believe in a God who by grace has given us everything, who has saved us, who has invites us in. And we of all people should be full of joy, full of song, full of joyful singing to him. Let's be that church. Let's be that people because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the grace that you have shown us, this invitation. I thank you for all that you have done in in sending Jesus. Lord, in response to what he has done for us, Lord, help us to repent. Repent of our sin, yes, but also repent of our righteousness. Lord, help us not to look on, on the good things that we have done.
but Lord, help us to look at Jesus. So help us to repent of our badness as well as our goodness, of our righteousness as well as our unrighteousness. And because of all that Jesus has done, fill us with great joy, great joy in all of life, but a great joy especially as we come and joyfully sing your praises in response to what you have done. Amen.